It's Tuesday, January 31st, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Cindy Williams schmozzled off this mortal coil. Yes, the 75-year-old star of Laverne and Shirley, a show that was dominant in the ratings, but we should say upon sober reflection, really quite terrible. She did pass away. Sad for her, sad for her family. Her legacy lives on. In that show that I am sorry to say gives me no joy. Yes, Laverne and Shirley brought me no joy. Perhaps you differ, perhaps you remember it as a show that was a large part of your youth, but that's probably why you remember it fondly. More the youth part than the show part. This is no reflection of Cindy Williams as a light comic actress, as an endearing presence on your TV, or certainly as a person, but the show was without real worth comedically, and if you remember it differently, let us attribute that to nostalgia, literally pain from the past. Happy Days was funny and sweet and tapped into something. It wasn't a masterpiece, but there were jokes on the show that were well-crafted and well-delivered, and the Fonz was iconic and deserved to be. Proof that Happy Days had value is the fact that it gave birth to the concept of jumping the shark. And what is jumping the shark? It's a demarcation of when a TV show goes from good to bad. Ergo, that show, Happy Days, must have once been good. Laverne and Shirley, we watched... Because it was on. That's why we watched most of what we watched. Here's just a bit of Laverne and Shirley, chosen essentially at random from the beginning of an episode. Season 1, episode 4. This place is falling apart. Someone took all the toilet paper out of the ladies' room. (laughs) Cheryl, why'd you take the paper? Because I'm making tiny little carnations for our high school reunion. Aren't they festive? Boy, you're a corker. Thank you. You really work your little heart out planning these reunions, don't you? I do my best. In the three years since we graduated, how many reunions have we had? Four. Do you really think people want that many reunions? I admit having two the first year was a mistake, but I've learned my lesson. Uh, How can I say this without hurting your feelings? Your reunions stink. Stinks. They stink. Well delivered. Fine interplay between the Laverne and Shirley. But I agree with the sentiment. Stinks. Here's my problem. Here's the big problem. Here's the problem maybe you're having with me right now. Why am I weighing in? Why am I taking this moment to tell you that I thought Laverne and Shirley veered toward the somewhat silly while never straying from the realm of the very, very mild, the deeply mild? The only thing that stopped it from being profoundly mild would be the implication of profundity. Why am I talking about this? Because of the sad news that Cindy Williams died, who made a fine TV companion to us for all those years. But it does seem churlish and rude to use this occasion to note that. But if not this occasion, which? Obvious answer. None. No occasion. Just be a polite person and let all these undeserved encomia pass unremarked upon as any non-monstrous asshole of a person might do. I should, I probably should, if I were going for that brand, or rather, here's this idea. What if I use this space to tell you all the shows that we hold dear just because they were on, and I will do so unconnected to the death of a former star, lest I seem cruel. Too Close for Comfort was one, not a good show. BJ and the Bear, unwatchable. 
The A-Team, no dramatic tension. Magnum P.I., nice hat, cool mustache, bad show. Fantasy Island, predictable and contrived. And they will be missed but not by anyone with critical faculties. And the reason to do this is to note that other relics of our youth shows that we're also in the category of we watch them because they were on. Some of those shows were on and also good, and some were great. Family Ties is a worth it show that doesn't get remembered as fondly as its Thursday night on NBC brethren, but deserves to be. The seven episodes of Police Squad, were fabulous. Taxi was consistently great and still contains the single best scene in sitcom history, Jim's driving test. There, I said it. It's on the record. We grieve the passing of Cindy Williams because she seemed to have been a very nice lady who well embodied a role in a sitcom that we watched because it was better than whatever the hell else was on the other two channels. On the show today, a blockbuster trial in that it forced us to rewind and wound up being largely abandoned. But first, if we're talking meh TV, why not pivot and talk about the most important show in the history of the medium? Okay, maybe not the most important, one of them, maybe the best. And also we could talk about one of the best shows of 2022. Talk about The Sopranos and The White Lotus and a through line between them is the actor Michael Imperioli. It might not surprise you that the gravity Imperioli brings to his roles that's reflected in much of his other art, which includes decades of stage work and also fiction. Imperioli's novel, Perfume Burned His Eyes, is about a teenager who falls in with the quintessential New York musician, Lou Reed. I think you'll find Imperioli full of depth, insight, and good stories about his TV roles. He is up next. Michael Imperioli is an actor, a screenwriter, a novelist. You know him from The Sopranos. He was just in the last great season of White Lotus. And his book, The Perfume Burned His Eyes, is a novel about a 15-year-old who moves from Jackson Heights, Queens, into Manhattan in 1977. Now, if you're not from this part of the world, you might say to yourself, what is that, like 12 miles? Yeah, but especially in 1977, it was, as they say, worlds away. Michael Imperioli, welcome to The Gist. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. I know you've done a lot of writing. Tell me about a novel and a novel about a 15-year-old set in this time period. What about the character form and even time period compelled you? I started uh, writing uh, this book in 2013. Uh, I had attempted fiction before. Um, I spent a lot of time actually reading fiction. It's a big love of mine. Um, and then as the years went on, I really started paying attention to what books I liked and why would I, why I like them. What, what did the writer do to make me like them? What about the writing itself and the structure and the sentences appealed to me? So I was thinking about writing a novel. Um, my son was going was 16 at the time my middle child and he was going through you know 16 year old stuff as we all do yeah but i was trying to relate to that frame of mind you know so i could understand him better so i thought maybe i'll write a story about a kid and um set it in new york 77 i was 11 and i was living right outside of new york city 
Where were you living? I, I grew up in Mount Vernon, New York, which is right right on the edge of the Bronx. And it's right on the edge of uh, urban and suburban. Yeah, it's uh, it's near the Bronx, actually. It's right over the city city limits, you know. So, um, But I really like 77. Always been attracted to the, around that year and that era. Um, and Summer of Sam, which was a movie that I wrote with Spike Lee, was set in that year. And um, it just has a lot of allure historically and artistically and what was going on in the city. So I thought I'd set it then. And um, I started writing this story about a boy who goes from, like you said, Queens, uh, you know, a, a very short distance, but a very long, a big distance culturally. Three months into the writing of that, Lou Reed died. Now, at that time, Lou wasn't in the story at all. But after, when he died in October that year of 2013, it hit me kind of hard in a number of ways uh as a fan of course as a as an artist who he inspired uh as a new yorker but also as a friend because in the last decade of his life we got we had gotten to know each other um so in the midst of this kind of grief over losing him i just suddenly had the idea of inserting him into this story and having the kid interact with lou and um and lou's life at that time Listeners should know Lou Reed is a character in the story, a major character. They never say his name except in one part of the story in which is a break from the regular prose, where which you wrote as a screenplay. Stage play. A play, right, a stage play. Tell me, right, there's no camera pan in. Tell me about that choice. Part of it was really looking at it from this kid's point of view, because when the kid meets him, he doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know his history. He doesn't know how famous he is. Right. He doesn't know what kind of music he makes. So it really was about really trying to keep the story from the, I mean, it's told first person from this boy's, like his diary, basically. Um, and I really wanted to keep the audience in that perspective without the weight of historical Lou Reed. Because, you know, Lou looms large in rock and roll and especially New York rock and roll and talking about the 70s. Um, so I thought it was, it would, it would work better that way. Yeah. Now the kid lives in uh, in East Sixty Sixth Street. Is that right? Right or Fifty Eighth? I'm 50, trying to remember exactly the cross street. I think it is. Yeah. And again, for people outside New York, these distinctions are gigantic. But did he ever live that far uptown? It seems uncharacteristic. He oh, he, he did. Absolutely did. He lived. Apparently, he lived uh, in the same building, maybe on the same floor as Greta Garbo. Uh, he had two addresses, mid, more Midtown East. It's not so Upper East. Um, which was very uncharacteristic for him because he's known as such a downtown guy. Um, but I think he moved there kind of to get away from downtown and be a little bit removed from his circles. Um, and then later in the 70s, he finally did go downtown and moved back to the village. Um, but yeah, he certainly did. And I always found that kind of curious. I mean, at the time, he was living uh, with a transgender woman named Rachel Humphreys, which I did, which, you know, regarding Lou Reed is not at all out of the ordinary or surprising. But living on the east side in Midtown kind of did surprise me in this posh apartment building, probably around a lot of more buttoned, buttoned down people. Um, and I had read some uh descriptions of his life at that time and how he was living and where he was living and what the apartment was like and i've i i did a lot quite a bit of research both for the book and just as a fan even before the book um 
So a lot of um, a lot of those descriptions of of how he was living and where he was living is is, is somewhat accurate. Wow. So you did know him and you did get to know him. How much of the, per, rather than just the vibe of him, which I'm sure informed the book, were, were there any actual facts that he relayed to you that made their way into the book or things that wouldn't have been known from the historical record? Or maybe you talked to his wife, Laurie Anderson afterwards, stuff that he said to you that made his way, its way into the book. The first time I met him, he didn't know who I was. Mm-hmm. This was about uh, what year? Uh, probably 91. This is about 10 years before the Sopranos, though you had been. Yeah. Yeah. I lived in the village, Greenwich Village, in most of my 20s. And he was living there at the time. And I would see him sometimes walking around the neighborhood, which for me, as a kind of hero worshiping kid and aspiring artist, was very thrilling to see kind of your hero wandering around your own neighborhood, one of your heroes. But I never approached him. And then I got cast around when I was around 25 or six in a movie called I Shot Andy Warhol, which was about Valerie Solanas, who was this woman who, I guess, in 69 or 70, something like that, shot Andy, went into the factory. She was actually trying to get him to produce her play. He knew her a little bit, but she was very insane and unstable. And she went into the factory and got really paranoid that he was ripping her off and stealing her ideas. And she shot him. So I got cast as one of the Warhol superstars, a guy named Andine, who Lou was friends with. So I'm at the Knicks game and I see Lou Reed. And the game's over and we're kind of, you know, filing out of the arena and I see Lou Reed. And I'm like, this is great. Now I have an icebreaker to go talk to him. Now I'm playing one of his friends. Now the problem was Lou was infuriated that they were making a movie about this woman who almost killed one of his best friends. But I figured, you know, I'll just just tell him I'm an actor and blah, blah, blah. So I go up to him. I say, hi, uh, my name is Michael. I'm an actor. Um, I just got cast in this movie. I know you're not too happy about it, but um, because I'd read interviews with him, how how mad he was. I said, but it's called it's called I Shot Andy Warhol. And he goes, I think it's despicable that they're making a movie about this crazy, insane bitch. I said, um, yeah, 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 I understand. But um, I'm actually playing a friend of yours, Dean, And he looked at me and he went, good luck. And he turned away. And um, <laughs> I felt horrible. You know, I felt like an idiot. Uh, just really deflated. And then he looked over his shoulder. Now, at this point, we're on the escalator going down or up or something. And he, he looks over his shoulder. One of those huge MSG escalators, right? So you have a while. Yeah. He looks over his shoulder back at me and he weighs me to him. So I kind of snake through the crowd and go back up to him. And he puts his arm around me and leans in and says, listen, work hard, do a good job. And just remember, Andine was very, very funny. Uh huh. And that was it. Yeah. But that exchange and that quick kind of turn from, you know, aggression and nastiness into, you know, somewhat of a sympathetic, more compassionate nature um, stuck with me and really made its way into the book, the story, and the relationship between him and the kid. Well, other than the fact that maybe you weren't drinking eggclairs, that's the most New York uh, New York interaction I could think of, Lou Reed at a Knicks game in the 70s, but also it seems like, from what I know, so quintessential Lou Reed in that 
he could be really gruff and really biting, especially when if you've crossed him, right? Or if he thinks you've crossed him, as with a critic, which shows up in your book. But then there's such a deep reservoir of uh, humanity to him also, it would seem to me from what I read. Yeah, I mean, uh, as as witnessed that time at the Garden, and then later on when I finally did really meet him, uh, he was playing a concert in 2000 and I, and I asked my manager to get me tickets because it was sold out and she went through the publicist and I had seats and this was it shows up in the book right in the knitting room knitting factory right yeah he invited me backstage which I didn't know he knew I was there or knew who I was but the sopranos had been out and was quite popular and he was a big fan and then he was gave me a big hug and he was really happy to see me and it was very you know special for me um but, uh, you know, Lou at that time in the 70s was a really bad drug addict and alcoholic, it particularly was uh, injecting a really strong form of amphetamine that they would give to like heart attack victims, you know, to revive them and shit. And he was shooting that stuff, like taking, you know, for days and drinking tons. So um, a lot of the people uh, who are around now don't necessarily remember that Lou, you know, and the Lou that I met in two, you know, finally in 2000 was a very different person, although he still could be quite gruff, especially with journalists and be impatient when people were, you know, um, invading his privacy, things like that, but nowhere to uh, near the kind of level of instability and mood swings that he, ex you know, exhibiting in the seventies. Right. So as a reader and as someone who really loves Lou Reed, every time he was there, it was magical. And I know it's a, a novelistic invention, but it's not that I convinced myself it was real. I just enjoyed being in his company and it seemed very plausible. But you also have a responsibility as a novelist to not, well, maybe uh, as he thought the makers of I Shot Andy Warhol did, not violate what would be... Um, his trust or maybe the trust of his family, not portray him in ways that were inconsistent. Um, there may, may be a temptation to do something crazy with the Lou Reed character. Uh, so what did you do? What rules did you have for yourself or how did you conceive of approaching that aspect of the book? First off, I never would have written it if he was alive. Um, not that I feel I made a bad portrayal of him, but just I would never kind of want to invade his privacy that way. Um, second, I had a lot of love for him and, and uh, the highest level of admiration and respect. So I had to, I, I trusted that. And from talking to people and from reading about him, you know, I was able to put together, you know, a, a pretty, for me, what I thought was a pretty clear sense of who he was and stay within that. Um, like I said, the biographical facts logistics of the time were all based on on real stuff and um you know tried to make him a human being and i know he was demonized by drugs and alcohol at the time um and that kind of certainly leads you to you know behaving ways that you probably wouldn't if you had the benefit of sobriety um you know there was someone in particular who was very very close with him at that time I'm not going to say who it was, but um, thought that I knew him then. Yeah. And that I was in that apartment and that I knew Rachel and that I was around back then. And I said, I was 11. I was nowhere near there. They thought the kid was me and that that was my story. 
Um, so I took that as a, uh, as a compliment, you know, that at least they felt, they felt there was a certain amount of accuracy to that. Yeah. So I want to get to, uh, some other aspects of the novel and your work, but as a reader and someone pretty familiar with, uh, his songs, was I playing a trick on myself or were there a lot of what is called now Easter eggs, little, there are, there are huge references to songs he wrote and we see the early writing of Street Hassle that he's kind of playing it uh, for the main character and the Blue Mask winds up being, uh, the lyrics to the Blue Mask wind up being important if you know that song. But there are just little mentions, like he's having what I considered a New York telephone conversation at one point. I'm like, is that because of the song? Or is he likes to watch things on TV, which is, you know, a satellite of love reference. Was I doing that to myself or were there a bunch of little Easter eggs to Lou Reed songs sprinkled throughout? Those two that you mentioned, I, I never put together before. They weren't really taken from songs, but they were taking definitely taken from, I think, what I had read and heard about him at the time, right? Um, there were little Easter eggs like, and this is getting a little bit esoteric, right? Um, the live album, Take No Prisoners, he talks a lot. Yes. it's. I think it's 1978 or 79 and probably high on speed and drinking and talks an awful lot. Half of the concert is of monologues. Yeah. And he mentions the Theater of the Ridiculous, which was a theater company in New York from, I probably from the 60s through the 70s. They were quite popular in the 70s and 80s. I think even into the 90s. So there's a scene in the book where they go to a theater that's based on, he goes to see a play that's based on that theater and based on the people, you know, maybe involved in the theater at the time. So if you had heard that song, if you heard that speech between songs on that album, you might put that together, but that's kind of pretty subtle, I guess. But there were a couple of things. So certain choices that I would make it, for instance, that one, um, were based on maybe like things that I heard him say or from interviews or bi biographies of him. When the main character, Maddie, is going through what his first sexual experience is, which is pretty traumatic, it's all presented in a huge prose block, no paragraphs. And to me, that, that reminded me of a little bit of Street Hassle or a Lou Reed song that, I mean, other forms of art, right, where you break from the normal um, structure of things. But I don't know if one was informed by the other. No, that was just trying to um, trace the mind uh, under the influence of drugs under a lot of stress and with a lot of fear and probably a lot of intrigue and excitement as well and drugs. So, um, again, writing mostly most of this book from the first person um point of view as as really a journal um he the character is trying to remember that state of mind and allow himself that kind of free association to express something that was pretty yeah traumatic so you say that you wrote this book um as a form of understanding your son or connection with your son you were thinking about your 16 year old son who's going through this but it didn't work it didn't work. No. He didn't, did he read it? He read it years. Well, by the time he read it, he was not 16 anymore. He was probably 19 or 20. But um, 
because it took me a while to finish it. Uh, but as far as understanding him more and that point of view, probably not. No, but anyway, <laughs> that's okay. As an artist, it's a good jumping off point. But yes, but I do note it that there's no father in the book. I mean, that's what kind of kicks it off. And it, it's actually, it's not really the case that Lou Reed is tries to become a father figure. No way. He's, he's like this weird mystical being. No. He doesn't try, but the kid is gravitating towards him in a sense as a father figure because he loses the two his two major male role models as his father. His grandfather was a very big patriarchal presence in his life, and his father was kind of an absent father, was an absent father, and they both they both die in a very small space of time. So so and then he moves, so uh, he's. Definitely gravitating toward Lou as a somewhat of a father figure. Lou is not stepping into that role by any means. But on another level, for me, maybe even more importantly, uh, it's about kind of the lineage of artists because, you know, you can see that the kid has certain artistic leanings and sensibilities. I don't, I don't explicitly say he becomes an artist as an adult. Later on in the, in the story, he does write a little play. Um, so it's almost like Lou is uh, this artistic mentor. And tomorrow, we'll be back to talk to Michael Imperioli about the differences between Mike White and David Chase, and his reflections on James Gandolfini. That's tomorrow. And now the spiel. America's worst jihadist terrorist attack in the last half decade was adjudicated last week, as you no doubt heard on the news. And this attack, which was, wait, you don't know which one I mean? It doesn't immediately come to mind. More people killed by an Islamic terrorist operating in the U.S. than any incident since the Pulse nightclub shooting? Nothing? If not, this is because the trial barely rated news coverage. This is because what was once an obsession of public life has waned. And some of our obsession with terrorism was, of course, quite overblown in the decade after 9-11. This obsession was prompted by powerful government and media institutions, which pointed our attention in the direction of threats. If nothing else, the lack of attention paid to this last jury verdict shows how much our priorities have changed. On Halloween 2017, terrorist Seifolo Saipov drove through a bike path murdering eight in New York City. That was his intent. We can say murdering because a federal jury in Manhattan convicted the Uzbeki national, as Lester Holt reported on NBC Nightly News hours after the verdict. In New York City today, the verdict handed down for an ISIS-inspired truck attack on Halloween in 2017. The jury finding the attacker, Seifolo Saipov, guilty on all counts. Prosecutors say he drove a rented truck along a busy bike path, striking and killing eight people in the deadliest terror attack in New York since 9-11. He could receive the death penalty. And that was the entirety of the report. After the killing of Tyree Nichols, rightly led the newscast, NBC's second biggest and longest story of the evening was the trial of Alex Murdoch. ABC also played the Murdoch trial up high with the reporter at the scene and afterward did a two-sentence summary of the Saipov verdict. The networks did barely any reporting during the entire length of the three-week terrorism trial. 
NPR did not cover the Saipov verdict. It did not air a story about the Saipov trial at all. In fact, their only coverage of the crime was a wire service story on their website. The last mention of Saipov on air coming in a story in 2018. The New York Times ran occasional stories during the trial, none on the front page. The only front page coverage was a pre-trial story focusing on the question of the death penalty. This has been the only federal trial during the Biden administration where the death penalty was on the table. During the Saipov trial, the New York Times ran more stories about the death of Lisa Marie Presley than Saipov, including a Lisa Marie Presley front page story. So why does a murder trial with two victims held in South Carolina state court rate more coverage everywhere? Why does the very sad, untimely death of the daughter of an icon get twice the coverage in the New York Times as a New York terrorist attack that shattered lives, frightened the city, left psychological scars, and called into questions issues of immigration, justice, and law enforcement? Well, maybe it's that of the eight people killed, six were foreign tourists. Maybe it's that in this era of mass shootings, a death toll of eight is news, but not seen as mandatorily front-page news. I think it's actually more this. Islamic terrorism in the wake of 9-11 was once portrayed as the greatest threat to the homeland. Homeland, a word that was repurposed in the name of anti-terrorism vigilance. So Saipov kills eight, and that's scarcely noted, but contrasted to the underwear bomber or the shoe bomber. Know how many they killed? Zero, each, or total. But you do remember them. Why? Well, their plans were grander, and our fears of those plans matched. And maybe, no, I'll say definitely, there was too much fear in the air over the threat of terrorism. And in the last decade, terrorism in the U.S. more likely means homegrown terrorists, usually with far right-wing agendas. Those have, in fact, proved more deadly. So, some of the corrective is warranted. But I'm surprised it has been to this degree. And I think it might be an over, let's say, correction. One part of the reason that Islamic terrorism has subsided is that we were vigilant, and this latest collective news decision to ignore reflects a waning commitment to vigilance. It also reflects seriously questionable news judgment. I could mention that the names mentioned instead of Saipov were names like Murdoch, as I talked about, or of course, Meghan Markle. That dominated news coverage, and I do understand the titillation of a mysterious murder that launched a thousand podcasts, a celebrity royal relationship, straining against an imposing institution. But those who decide what is news and what we should be paying attention to have simply decided that in the category of important news, life and death, violence that could be a threat to you, Islamic terrorism is not in the category of very newsworthy. The decision is no doubt reinforced by the interest of the public. I'm sure if any of these networks saw a rating spike at mention of New York bike path terrorist, they'd chase those ratings. And it's also probably true that really strong Islamic terrorist antipathy codes Trump and Trumpist, which the networks and non-Fox cable news find allergic. But you might think, or I would think, that still, if it bleeds, it leads. There was a carnage here. And even if it's mostly the blood of Argentines that was spilled, that still has to mean something. And you might think that an extremely high-profile crime in America's media capital would necessarily create interest. I'd have thought that. I'd be wrong. 
It's not as if we have bigger issues to cover, just different ones. The threat matrix is still jammed up, just not with terrorism, more with extremists, insurrectionists, police officers, viruses, and the paroxysms of media-controlling billionaires. No, not the old ones, the new one. Never fear, there's always fear, just different fears than the last time. Fear that isn't misdirected per se, but is less based on actual lethality and more based on the interplay of narrative between audience and provider. That's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara, the producer, Joel Patterson, the senior producer. CEO of Peachfish Productions is Michelle Pesca. The Gist is produced in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu Jeeperu Dooperu. Thanks for listening. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Shlemiel, Shlemazel, Hassan Beff Incorporated.